Good morning. It's good to be with you, uh, especially since you changed your worship time, so I can actually be here uh, to see what God has been doing in Oshkosh. We, uh, I, I appreciate uh, Josh's kind words, and we do feel like, I mean, I think all Presbyterian churches kind of refer to each other as sister churches. I think it's especially in the case with us. I mean, sort of being launched and birthed on the same day. We are twins of a bit, just 30 minutes older on our, on our end. Yeah, and, and Josh and I have been sort of kindred spirits and brothers, as we've called each other, because not many people know exactly what we're going through, except he and I, you know, just uh, church planting feels fragile a lot of times, and you're kind of in the ups and downs of the roller coasters, and it's been good to have another brother I can call, go, are you feeling the same things I'm feeling? He's like, yeah, I am. So we can pray for each other and, and, and dream in what we hope to see these churches be in our city, not only today, not only to reach our neighbors now, but 100 years from now, to plant something that could outlive all of us, that would be a beacon for the gospel for, for generations to come. That's, that's our hope, and it's been fun to sort of share our dreams and prayers and, uh, with one another. So it's good to be here. It's good to see this uh, in living person. Um, I'd love for you guys to come to Madison sometime. Uh, we'll be worshiping at 4 o'clock today, so just come on down. And, I'm just kidding. Uh, anytime you find yourself, please come. Uh, we're very excited about what God is doing uh, in the state of Wisconsin and, and in our cities. Um, but my job is to preach to you today. I know you're in, the, in Genesis and the story of Jacob, and I want to talk to you about... The time when Jacob was attacked by God and wrestled to the ground, and why God would do that uh, to, to Jacob. So we're going to read together in Genesis chapter 32, uh, verses 22 to 32. Um, I don't know what number it is in your pew Bible, but it's the first book in the Bible. There you go. It's the first book in the Bible, and you turn to chapter, chapter 32. Starting in verse 22. The same night, he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, and he crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and he sent them across the stream, and everything else that he had, and Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of that place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I love this story. I love Jacob's story. Uh, I relate to Jacob's story. I heard Josh say last week uh, that he, for a long time, did not relate to Jacob. I was like, that's because you're too pure and innocent. Like, you got you to gotta have some deceitfulness about you and some, uh, some scheming ways about you. I, I, I love Jacob and because the theme of Jacob's life is blessing, right? From the day he comes out of the womb all the way to this moment, the theme of Jacob's life is blessing. He wants blessing more than he wants anything else in this life. 
And I think we can all relate to that, right? I mean, even as Christians, we long for God's blessing. We want God's blessing to be poured out in our lives. I think even non-Christians in our world, whether they would say it comes from God or not, they long for a blessed life, like a good life, blessing in this life. And, and we all sense that there's some sort of higher power that has some control over this, whether it, they call it fate or whatever else, right? But for us, especially for us as Christians, we want the blessing of God. That's what we live for. Uh, and God said he wants to bless us. And he gives this whole, you know, this benediction that we do at the end of each service where he's, God says, I want to bless my people, right? So this is the theme of Jacob's life. It's the theme of our lives. We want the blessing of God. I, I guarantee you in our prayers, it's probably the number one word you say. Bless me. Bless him. Bless this. Bless the situation. That's what we want from God. The question, the question for us, the question for Jacob is, how do we get it? How do we go about securing the blessing of God? Or really, is it up to us at all? How does, this, how does this transaction happen? How does blessing come from God to us? What do we have to do in order to get it? Well, I'll tell you, Jacob's name tells you about how he went about trying to get it. If you know Jacob's name, literally means heel grabber or supplanter. Anyone named Jacob in this room? Okay, good. I can make fun of the name then. Supplanter, heel grabber. That's not a great name. That's not a great meaning for your name. But we know where this comes from. If you know the story, Jacob has a twin brother named Esau. And when they were born, Esau was actually born first. But Jacob came out holding on to the heel of his brother. And you might think, that's kind of weird. What is, what's going on there? Well, it's, it's very significant in those days because being the firstborn male in a family came with tremendous amount of benefits or blessing and mostly seen as blessing from God. The firstborn would receive two-thirds of the family inheritance, while the remaining children, how many ever was, would split the remaining third? And in some cases, this is an enormous amount of money. This is, this is a fortune. So we're talking about a lot of blessing to be had. And here comes Esau out, the, the rightful firstborn, and Jacob comes in hanging on to his heel. <laughs> and that's why he's called Jacob, heel grabber, supplanter. Someone who wants the blessing. Coming out of the womb, he wants the blessing and the fortunes, and he's going to try to take it from his brother. Right? And so from the womb, this is Jacob's life, dominated by the pursuit of God's blessings. He wants it so bad that he's even named after it. You know, another way to talk about being a heel grabber or being a supplanter is to be a deceiver, is to be a schemer, is to be someone who's always sort of Got, got something rolling around in your head of how you're going to make things happen for yourself. It's, a, it's to be a manipulator. And guys, Jacob lives up to that name. By the way, how would you like to be named by your worst quality, by your worst trait? Right? Hi, my name's, my name's a Liar. Here's my wife, Anxious. Right? Like, that's, that'd be awful. But that's, that's the situation we have here. And Jacob is living up to his name. He deceives his starving brother later on out of selling his birthright to him, this birthright to this blessing in exchange for some lentil stew, right? Deceiving, scheming. He tricks his nearly blind elderly father into pronouncing blessing on him instead of Esau on his deathbed by dressing up like Esau, scheming. See it? Then after he has to run away, obviously, because Esau wants to kill him, he goes and lives with his uncle Laban, and there he schemes Uncle Laban out of tremendous wealth. 
See, his whole life is dominated by manipulating and scheming and grabbing to try to secure God's blessing on his own, on his own terms. We don't know all the psychology of why Jacob did this. I bet something has to do with it, though, about the stories he heard about his grandfather. We don't know much about his father, Isaac, but we know a lot about his his grandfather, Abraham. If you know Abraham's story, Abraham was also promised blessing, but he had to wait and wait and wait for blessing. God promised him, I'm going to give you a son. You know how long it took from that promise till the day Isaac was born? 25 years. So Jacob might have been, that's not going to be me. I'm going to make things happen for myself. I'm going to take things into my own hands. And he lives up to his name, schemer, deceiver, manipulator. When you think about Jacob, you, could, you should think about, if you watch the show Breaking Bad, anybody? You should think about Saul Goodman. He's like the, the schemy, gross lawyer guy. Or maybe uh, in our world, we talk about used car salesmen, something like that. No offense to honest used car salesmen in the room. But that's, that's the kind of thing you should think about. A guy who's always got something up his sleeve, trying to work the situation for his own benefit. What this means is Jacob is the epitome of self-reliance, self-sufficiency. How am I going to get God's blessing? I'm going to use everything at my disposal, my wit, my charm, my conniving, everything, and I'm going to secure blessing on my own terms. And as a result of this, Jacob's life is littered with casualties for him conniving to get blessing and wounding everybody in his path, especially his brother Esau, as you guys talked about last week. Now, some of you may be sitting here going, all right, come on, self-sufficiency, self-reliance, making things happen for ourselves, like, these are good things, right? These are good traits. I'm trying to teach my kids how to do this in this world to, to, to survive, right? These are virtues. Like, we need more ambition like this in our country. But you know what? We need to be uh, arrested, shocked by how God responds to these traits in Jacob. He attacks him. He wrestles him, and he ultimately wounds him. Because he wants to get this do-it-yourself way of functioning out of his life. That's what God thinks of that. It's clear in this text the one who initiates the fight is God. (laughs) I love this. I love this picture of God. And this kind of another reason you can trust your Bible, right? If you're trying to paint this rosy picture of God, you don't have him jumping his people (laughs) wrestling them to the ground and wounding them, wrenching their hip. Like, that's not what you would do to paint this pretty picture of God. And that's how you know you have the real God. And that's how you know you don't have a tame God. But you do have a good God. And in his goodness, he loves Jacob enough to wrestle self-sufficiency out of his life so he can learn to trust God and not in himself. I don't know what it is for you, I don't know where you struggle with self-reliance, self-sufficient ways you're going to secure God's blessings on your own. But I know that God loves you enough to wrestle this out of your life, to wrestle your besetting sins out of your life. I know that real transformation is possible for us. And I know it because it happens right here in this passage. Everything in this passage is about change, right? Night turns into day. Jacob turns into Israel. This is the turning point of Jacob's life, and I'm confident that this sort of turning point can happen for us, too. So let's look closely at how God does it, how he does it with Jacob and how he does it with us. 
I want, to, I, want to, I want you to consider two things as we think about how God wrestles with you, with us as people. Number one, I want you to see how he wrestles you to get you to own your old name, like your deceiving, scheme, scheming ways. And secondly, I want you to see how he wrestles you to get you to embrace your new name. All right, let's talk first. How does he wrestle Jacob? How does he wrestle us, wrestle us to get us to own our old name? And first I want you to see that's, is, that's exactly kind of what happens. In, in verse 27, when this mysterious man who shows up, who we learn later, is God, because he says, I saw God face to face. When he asked Jacob, they're, they're, they're like wrestling all night. And at one point he asked Jacob, what is your name? Which is sort of an odd question for a guy you've been wrestling for several hours. He's not asking him just to make sure, like, are you Jacob? Am I, am I, am I fighting the right guy here? No. He's asking a more piercing question. He's going, who are you, really? Right? Who are you? What are you like? What is your character? So it's answering a much more penetrating question. And so when Jacob answers, my name is Jacob, it's actually a confession of sin. It's a confession of guilt. He says, yeah, I've I've been wrestling against you my entire life, scheming my ways, and I'm going to own it right here in this moment because I can't beat you. I beat everybody else in my life, and I can't beat you. I'll say it. I'm a schemer. I'm a deceiver. I've been operating out of self-reliance my entire life. That's what God God does. He wrestles him to the ground, breaks him down to get get him to own his own name. I think that's what he does with us as well in love. So how does he do it? How does God go about it? Well, the first thing you want to see that he does is he gets Jacob and he gets us alone in a place of vulnerability. Look at verse 22. The same night Jacob arose, he took his two wives, his two female servants, his 11 children, and he crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and he sent them across the stream and everything else that he had, and Jacob was left alone. You know what's going on? He hears Esau's coming after him. And so he's putting everything that he loves, everything that he's gathered by his conniving, scheming ways, and he puts it on the other side of the ford to protect it. And now he's left alone, to thinking, thinking he's going to go meet his brother. But in fact, he meets someone else. But notice what God does. He strips Jacob of everything that he had acquired. All the things that he would look to for security, for significance, everything that he had gotten through his own way of doing things, his possessions, his wealth, the wife that he loved, Rachel, the, wife, the other wife that he didn't love but gave him children, Leah. That's a different sermon. Did you guys talk about that? Yeah, I'm not going there. And his 11 children, like all of it, everything that he had gathered by the work of his hands, out of his sight, and Jacob is left alone. So you can actually deal with God. Uh, before I moved to Madison, I lived uh, in Knoxville, Tennessee, as a, doing ministry there as well. And while I was there, a few years into it, I was invited to do something that I had never, ever done before. There's a friend in town who's kind of a pastor to pastors, which is a, a beautiful thing. And he invited all of us to go on, on something he called a silent retreat. I was like, tell me more about this silent retreat. And he goes, well, here it is, 24 hours no talking, no TV, no iPhone, no computer. You can bring one book, a Bible, and you can bring a pad and a blank journal. That's it. 24 hours of silence with God. You know, about 10 years later, now I'm like, that sounds amazing, right? But 10 years ago, I was like, that sounds terrifying. 
that sounds terrifying. 24 hours left alone to my thoughts and myself wrestling with God? Uh Uh-uh. I was terrified of being alone with God. In fact, I actually cheated when I was on this. I snuck into this room that had a TV, and I watched some of the Duke-UNC basketball game. But that's how much I was running from being alone with God. Because if I'm alone, if I shut out all the noise, what would I, what would I be confronted with? What would God confront me with? I think it's possible that we try to stuff our lives with so, many, so much activity, people, and things so that we don't have to be alone with God. Could it be that the, we fill all the silences of our lives with noises and gadgets and distractions so we can avoid what God's trying to do to get us to own some things in our lives? Could it be that one of the greatest hindrances to God's work in my life is my smartphone? <laughs> it's amazing. It's my constant companion to keep me from being silent ever. I think the French philosopher Blaise Pascal hit it on the head when he said, all of man's misfortune comes from one thing, which is not knowing how to sit quietly in a room. (laughs) We're running, in a lot of ways, running from dealing with God. And he has to get us alone. He had to get Jacob alone so that he could deal with him. But whenever we get alone, whether we intentionally seek it out or whether it's forced upon us through our circumstances, we discover one of the great and beautiful mysteries that it's especially in these places of loneliness and solitude and fear, actually, that's where God shows up without fail. That's where God shows up. I love verse 24. It literally says, and Jacob was left alone and a man showed up. I'm like, where did this guy come from? It doesn't even say. All we know is Jacob was left alone, but he's not alone at all. God is there. He stripped Jacob of everything else so that he can do his work on Jacob. Brothers and sisters, when you feel like you're being stripped of everything, you hold dear. And many of us have experienced that in life or will experience it. Everything we look to, everything we built by our own scheming, everything we look to for, for significance, I don't run from it. Don't run from being alone with God by filling it with noise, Right? You get the sense that Jacob's been running his entire life, and God says, no more. I'm going to get you alone, and I'm going to deal with you. And I think he does the same to us. Again, whether voluntarily or circumstantially, I think, as we're going to see, this becomes the place of blessing. And you actually are alone and can deal with God. That's the first thing God does to sort of get Jacob to own his own name. He's got to get him by himself so he can deal with him. But secondly, I want you to see the next thing God does is kind of a paradox and one we're always going to struggle to understand. He actually wounds Jacob in order to heal him. He wounds him. He wounds us in order to heal us. Notice this. Jacob and God have been wrestling all night. And as the sun begins to rise, the match reaches its climax. Look at verse 25. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Now, we've got to think about this a second, because we know this is God. Right? He says later, I've met God face to face. So this is God in some incarnate form. And this means that God could have easily overpowered Jacob at any point, right? At any point, he could have said, all right, I'm done with this. But he like contends with him and wrestles with him all night, which I think is... 
really interesting. I think it's actually a, a, a beautiful picture of God's grace. I think what God's telling you is as you wrestle with him, he's not going to crush you. He's not going to destroy you. He's going to be patient with you. He's going to enter into the battle with you. But there comes a time where he has to do his thing. And in this case, he wounds Jacob in order to heal him. The Hebrew word that talks about when, when the man, when God touched Jacob's hip, the word gives the indication of like the slightest tap, like the way you press an elevator button. <laughs> right? After all night of wrestling, that's all it took to dislocate Jacob's hip forever. He's crippled for life. But this is the moment when Jacob finally realizes that this is no ordinary man. This is God himself. And notice what happens in Jacob. He moves from wrestling the man to actually clinging to him, which is so significant. What I think this means, guys, I think this means that God will often wound us at the place of our greatest strength, (laughs) the place where we have the most self-sufficiency so that he can expose you to weakness so you can actually learn to rely on God. Right? Jacob had always been self-sufficient in his own strength, and now he's finally met his match. And someone that can go with him toe-to-toe all night and then takes him out with just a tap on the hip. And finally, finally, he, he moves from a life defined by wrestling with God and against him to a life now of clinging to God, saying, don't let me go. Don't let me go until you bless me. You see this? He finally sees that blessing is not in scheming. It's not in my own ways. Blessing comes in clinging to the very source of blessing itself, holding on for dear life. I think this is what God is doing in all of our lives to some degree. Moving us from a place of wrestling against him, doing our own way, going, going our own ways to clinging to him. And he often has to do it by lovingly wounding us precisely in the areas of our strengths. The places where we think, I've got this. I wonder where that is for you. Maybe it's in your marriage. Like, I know I'm going to be a good husband. Maybe it's as a parent. Like, I know I'm doing it better than those people. Is it in your vocation? Like, all my coworkers are junk, but I, I, know, I'm, I know I'm doing what I can. I, I'm good. I'm good at my gifts. I know what I'm doing. Like, I don't know where it is. Maybe it's even in your religious performance, right? I know how to follow my God. I know how to do the quiet time thing. I know how to do this. I, I've often seen and experienced personally that God will send a, a difficult marriage or a difficult child or a lost job some sort of moral failure in order to humble us. Right? He tacks the places of our greatest strengths because these are the places where we're trying to live without God and our self-sufficiency. He says, I'm going to teach you dependence in this very place. And brothers and sisters, his wounds, these wounds are a loving wound from a father that is in order to heal us, to renew us. He brings us to weakness so that we can finally say, God, I don't have this. I don't got this. But I have you. I'll cling to you. And that's all I need. It always strikes me as interesting. uh, Anytime I I discipline my children, I, I would think that the process of disciplining, which, you know, does wound them to some capacity, 
would make them like turn against me or be angry at me. But you know what they do every time there's a discipline? You know what they do immediately? They turn to me and embrace me and hug and we talk it through. Like they understand at some level this, this wound was meant to heal me. And so I turn to you and I embrace you. I cling to you. I know many of you have experienced wounds in this life. I don't know you, but I know that's true. But they are wounds, often wounds from God, in order to actually heal us. So that we can lay down our illusions of control and strength and sufficiency and learn to cling to our Father. Right? It's actually in our weakness that you find real strength. It's actually in being defeated that you find real blessing from God. This is it. I think this is God's strategy in Jacob's life and our life to get us to own our own name. Right? He gets us alone so we can actually be with God. And he wounds you in order to heal you. And he breaks us down and he leads us to our, that repentance where we get to own our name. Lord, I am a Jacob. I'm a schemer. I'm a deceiver. I think I'm strong, and now I know I'm not. I'm tired of wrestling against you. I'm ready to cling to you. And that leads to our second point. So he wrestles us to get us to own our old name. And secondly, he he wrestles us to get us to embrace our new name. Just as night is becoming day, so also that sun is setting on the old Jacob. This old man who's been doing things his his own way his whole life. The sun rises on a new man. And so to commemorate this transformation, God actually changes Jacob's name. Look at verse 28. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. This is really interesting. God gives Jacob a new name, Israel. And there's actually some considerable debate about what, how to translate this new name. Because if you think about it, Israel is a compound name. Israel. And you put it together, the last part is El, which is the name of God in, in Hebrew. And then the first part of it is the form of the word Sarah, which means to fight or to struggle or to rule. So it has often been, been translated, he struggles with God, which would be accurate of Jacob's life at this point. But that also assumes that God is the object of that compound world instead of the subject. All right, grammar people, are you with me? And so if you switch it around and you assume God is the subject of it, then it's not he struggles with God, but what is it? God struggles, or God fights, or God rules. God prevails. And I believe it's actually the better translation, because who is actually prevailing here in this wrestling match? It's God. God prevails, not Jacob. Jacob goes from being a deceiver, right? Jacob rules. Jacob's in charge to his new name, Israel. God rules. God's in charge. And this makes the rest of verse 28 kind of a statement of sheer grace. (laughs) Has Jacob contended with men and won? I don't think so. He cheated Esau, but he lost his brother. He outwitted Isaac, his father, but he lost his good name. And he wrestles with God, but he loses. (laughs) In every case, Jacob is the loser in all of this, not the winner, but he's actually called the prevailer. Sheerly, because of God's grace, because God's going to fight for him. This story, just to sort of back that up a little bit, this story is also referenced in the book of Hosea, Hosea 12.4. Now tell me again if this sounds like Jacob winning. 
It says in Hosea 12.4, Jacob struggled with the angel and overcame him. He wept and begged for his favor. Now let me ask you, if I get in a fight with you and it ends with you begging me for favor, would you say that you won that fight? Of course not. No. But this is the point of our last sort of beautiful paradox here, is that you win by losing. Oftentimes in the Christian life, you win by losing. Think about this. The one thing that Jacob has wanted his entire life is the blessing of God. It's all he's been seeking. It's behind all his scheming and all his manipulating, all his deceiving. But when, brothers and sisters, when does the blessing finally come to Jacob? When he's empty, wounded, humbled, weeping, clinging to God and begging for favor. And that's when blessing comes. It's a complete paradox. You win, you get this by losing. You know how I know that this is the pathway for blessing in our lives? Not through our scheming, but how God wants to give it to us, even if it looks like wounding, even if it looks like losing. I know this because this is the pathway of Jesus himself who secures your ultimate blessing. All right, Jesus' love was demonstrated for us not in his feats of strength. You know this, but in his humility. Right, in the weakness of human flesh come among us, in the squalor of a stable, in the meekness of his life. Because if the prophet Isaiah is correct, Jesus was not someone you looked at and said, now that's a strong, impressive, beautiful person that I want to follow. That's not who he was. He had no beauty or majesty that we would be attracted to him. And brothers and sisters, the greatest moment of strength in Jesus' life is what looks like the greatest moment of weakness. Dying a humiliating death on a cross. But Jesus' weakness is in fact strength. Jesus wins by losing. And therefore, Ephesians 1, as we read, says, as a result of Jesus' victory, of God winning, that we have every spiritual blessing in Christ in the heavenly places. So let me ask you again, how do you get God's blessing? How do you get it into your life? Is it through our scheming and conniving ways? No, it's just because you belong to him. Because you are in Christ. Because he has given you a new name. And that's God wins. God fights for you. In Christ, we have every spiritual blessing. Just gives it to us because we belong to him. You know, God loves to change names. <laughs> he does it a lot in the Bible, actually. I love this sort of phrase, you shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. I wonder what that would be for you. You shall no longer be called this, but this in Christ. You shall no longer be called fearful, but courageous in Christ. You shall no longer be called complainer, but content. You shall no longer be called worrier, but trusting. You shall no longer be called adulterer, but faithful. You shall no longer be called liar, but honest. You see? God is wrestling that old name out of your life and he's giving you a new name, right? Not Matt rules, not Matt overcomes, but God rules. God overcomes, God wins. You get all this blessing through losing, actually. 
Remember, you need to embrace this new name that God gives you. And I need to tell you, in Jacob's life, that it comes with a limp. It comes with a side effect. It's a constant reminder that trusting in our own strength is futile. That it never works. That when we are weak, then we are actually strong. I don't know about you, brothers and sisters. I would rather limp with God than walk strong without him any day. Uh, Jacob's story is, uh, I've liked it for a long time, but it's especially uh, become more personal to me since I've moved to Madison, since we've done this crazy church planting experience, because in my, in my world, and it's kind of how I'm wired anyway, uh, there's no temptation like undergoing something like church planting to make you try to depend upon yourself, to throw this on the back of your hard work and try to put it together, <laughs> Like, I, I've, I've longed to know God's blessing in my life in this area and in my ministry. And, and often I just feel like it's all on me to make it happen. So I need to pretend that I'm strong. I need to go out there and, and go out there and, and put on this show of my strength. But brothers and sisters, it's precisely when God makes me weak that I actually know his strength. Right? Resurrection Church in Madison Livingstone here is not going to be built on the strength of Josh or me or anybody else. It's going to be, be when we are weak, then God is strong. Right? When we lose, actually, is that's how we will win. I need you to know this goes against every wiring that I have, <laughs> every wiring that I have in my system. It drives me nuts, but this is the pathway of blessing for God's people. So I ask you again, do you want to experience God's blessing in your life? In your marriage, then lose. Be willing to lose. In your vocation, then be weak and see what his strength can do. Do you want this church to impact the world for Jesus? Then let's be the limping people of God, right? That we are in in the likeness of a wounded Savior who wins himself by losing. Let's trust these words that when you are weak, then you are actually strong. Will you allow God to wrestle you today? (laughs) Will you allow him to assault everything in you that belongs to your old name? And when you embrace this new name, will you limp along so that people will see not you, but God's strength, God's power, God's victory? You shall be called Israel. God rules. God wins. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray you would take us from a place of wrestling against you to clinging to you in faith and in trust. Thank you for the amazing gospel and good news that blessing does not come to us through our efforts and through our ways, but only in the ways of Christ. Thank you that we, right now, as we sit in Christ, have every spiritual blessing. Life, forgiveness, adoption, Holy Spirit, the hope of a new heavens and new earth, all of it right now in us. Lord, teach us that we get all this by losing and laying down our self-sufficient ways. Lord, help us to learn that when we are weak, that's when we are strong in you. Thank you for this good news. In Christ's name, amen.